Hi, my name is Larissa, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 3, 14 to 17. And over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called into one body. And be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lou. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers stood outside trying to speak with him. Someone said to him, look, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak with you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of the Father who is in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Just remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask, Lord, that as we listen to your word being taught and being read, that you would do your work in our hearts, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears to hear your voice, open our eyes to see Jesus, and open our hearts to be transformed into his image, we pray. In Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. My name's Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. We are near the end of a series that we've been in for a few weeks on a little book in the New Testament called Colossians, and it's a letter that Paul, who was a church planter in the first century, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a group of young Christians in a city called Colossae, and Colossae was sort of a town that was past its prime. Paul himself had never been there, but one of his associates had planted this church, and so Paul, writing from prison, wants to encourage this group of Christians. And this morning, I want us to wrestle with the question of the church. What does it really mean to be the church? I, I don't know if you've had uh, any experience in trying to describe to people what you do when you come on Sunday mornings. You know, what'd you do this weekend? You're like, well, Saturday, we went and drove and saw the leaves, and then Sunday, we went to church, you know? And maybe in this town, it's not as strange of a thing. A, a pastor friend of mine in New York City in, in, in Hell, the Hell's Kitchen uh, area posted something on Instagram, a comic from the New Yorker, where the, per, the, the headline on the comic said, as strange as it might sound, 
around, sometimes I go to church, you know, and the person was like really, the, the whole idea of the comic uh, was that the person was embarrassed. This is a funny thing to admit, you know, as if, as if it were like Alcoholics Anonymous or something like, I don't know how to confess, but I admit I sometimes go to church, you know, and maybe that's a little different in Colorado Springs than in New York City, but I suspect that even in your daily and weekly routines, when you talk to people about church, they, they may struggle to say, well, what exactly is this like? And you say, well, we get together, and, and then first we sing songs out loud, and there's words on the screen, and they're like, so it's like a karaoke bar? And you're like, well, no, because A, the musicians and singers are really good, and B, uh, there's no yellow bouncy ball, and C, there's really no alcohol here, so it's nothing like a karaoke. And they say, well, well then, then what happens? You say, well, then someone gets up and, and, and talks for a little bit, and they're like, oh, it's like a TED Talk seminar or something. And you're like, well, kind of, but we're not really there for the speaker. You're there for one another and for Jesus and for all of that. And you say, well, what is it like? And maybe the thing that we import the most, you know, the, the paradigm that we import into uh, in, for understanding church uh, is that of the gym or the health club. And you're like, well, it's sort of like going to Core Power Yoga or Orange Theory or the YMCA or whatever, like spinning class. Like I'm there and I'm always happy to see all the people around me. And sometimes we even rally together and chip in for like whatever donation drive we're doing this month. But really, I'm just there for myself, for my own fitness. And church is kind of like that. Like, I like people, and we do some good stuff. But it's really just for me and Jesus. Now, that's not bad, but it's not altogether there. It's not quite what the New Testament envisions. And so we have to go back to the, 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 the early letters to these young churches and to say, what did they think they were? What was Paul trying to tell them that they ought to be? What's their own way of understanding who they are called to be as church. And one of the New Testament's most striking metaphors is that of a family, a household. Now, on the one hand, the family metaphor of church is both inspiring and intimidating. It's inspiring because we think, oh, I just love it. I mean, we still love to watch maybe the old kind of holiday movies around Thanksgiving or Christmas where families gather around and there's a meal. We sort of have this idealization, even if our own families are nothing like that, you know? Uh, and, and maybe that's the reason for the success of TV shows like This Is Us or even before it, Parenthood, where it's like, I just want to see where the relationships are raw and real, but everybody just loves one another. and It's a great family. So there's something inspiring about saying church is like a family. But if we're honest, there's also something terribly intimidating about it because we know families and families are a mess. And you're like, I know my family. If this is what the church is like, eh, eh, I want none of it. I, I know my crazy uncle and I know my stepdad and I know this, or you know, whatever, this, this cousin and that person. You think, that's what I'm supposed to compare church to? No thanks, right? I, I understand. And, and, and actually, church is much more than just one family, as Pastor Jason likes to say. The church is called to be a family of families that exists for all families of the earth. And you think, a family of families? I mean, any of you who are married in the room know how complicated it was just to get two families together, right? You're still having conversations about how to do the stuff with in-laws or this or that, right? Yesterday, I, was, I got to officiate a wedding that was of a couple of wonderful downtowners and two cultures colliding. And I was thinking even about our own marriage, my wife and her family from Iowa and my family from Malaysia, Singapore, Sri Lanka, we had a couple different ceremonies. We had a wedding that was here in Colorado, and then we went uh, um, over to Malaysia and had another reception and a uh, big dinner party there. And I thought, man, 
When I finally saw the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I thought, oh good, we're not crazy. <laughs> this happens, like this is okay. You know, I love the scene when she's like, you don't eat meat? It's all right, I make lamb, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so when we think about a family of families, we think, oh, now you are really crazy. Like, not just one family, but a family of families. And yet, the mission of God from the very beginning was to form one family out of all the families of the earth. And so our Old Testament reading this morning is God calling Abraham, and God does not call Abraham for Abraham's own sake. God calls Abraham for the sake of the whole world. God does not call one family for that family's sake. He calls that family for the sake of all families. And then if you track with the journey of the Old Testament, you know that Abraham's family, also known as Israel, ultimately fails in this way. They don't open up the doors and welcome in. They're not a light to the Gentiles. They're a disaster. They themselves are unfaithful. And so Jesus comes as the seed of Abraham, the New Testament tells us, and Jesus says, hey, I never gave up on the dream to form a family for myself. God never gave up on that dream. And so Jesus then says, one day, he, he's teaching, and they say, Jesus, your mom and your bros are outside. And he's like, no, 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 who's my mother and my brother? Now, this is not Jesus being a jerk. This is not Jesus going through a rebellious phase where he wants to disassociate from his family of origin. This is Jesus saying, you may not know this, but I'm continuing the mission of God that originally was announced to Abraham, which is to form one new family. And so Jesus says, you wanna know who my mother or my brothers or my sister are? It's all the people who do Yahweh's will. It's all the people who do my Father's will. Here's what Jesus is doing, friends. Jesus is reshaping identity and loyalty around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's forming a new kind of family. He's saying, in the family of God, your bloodlines, your ethnicities, your nationalities, all of the other ways of defining identity and loyalty, all of those other ways get transcended by something stronger than that. Are you in Jesus or not? Right? Now, in the kingdom of God, and we're going to see this this morning, in the kingdom of God, differences don't get erased, but divisions get brought down. Differences don't get erased. We don't all of a sudden all become of the same family background and all of the same social status. Differences don't get erased, but divisions get torn down. Divisions get torn down. And so Paul is writing to these, this group of Christians in Colossae, and, and so far, he's prayed for them out loud so they can learn how important prayer is. He's pointed to the supremacy and centrality of Jesus. He's retold them their story in the light of the gospel, He's reminded them how good God's grace really is. He's shown them how to grow in a way that avoids the trap of Christless religion or Christless spirituality. And he's helped them to understand the implications of having died with Christ and an old nature to, to put off and having been raised with Christ. Now, those are all the sermons we've done in this series. You can find them on our podcast. <laughs> but here we are today. Now, Paul says, I want to show you how to live as the family of Jesus. I want to show you what it looks like to live as this one new family. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, or your phone or your app, or you can just follow along on the screens up here. And Paul opens up and he says, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And then he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your relationships, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ. I want to say three things to us this morning, three things that help form us as the family of Jesus, three things that help us live together as the family of Jesus. And the first is this, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, what does this mean? The peace of Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about the early church. In the first century, in the Jewish world first, there were two broad types of Jews, two two general categories. You had one group of Jews who thought that the only way to survive as the people of God was to cozy up to Rome. And so they found ways of making strategic compromises with the empire, and they were there. They're like, listen, we can make this work. This is our survival strategy, is to get Rome on our side. They were pro-empire, pro-Rome. And the other group, one historian called the resistance. I'm not making this up. This other group called them the resistance. And this other group of Jews said, look, the only way to survive as the people of God is to join the resistance, is to be part of this. And then within that group, there was actually even more factions and parties. You had one party that was of the Essenes. And the Essenes were the ones that said, look, the only way to resist the empire is to withdraw completely. And so we're going to live in cave communities, quietly outside these urban centers. Another party within the resistance said, no, 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 no. The way to do this, they're the zealots, was to stri- is to strike up a fight and, and trust that God will complete it. We're going, to stri- we're going to pick a fight and trust Yahweh to finish it. And then the third party within the resistance was of the Pharisees. And they basically said, no, 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 the way to survive is to be ultra good at obeying God's laws. And if we're ultra good at obeying God's laws, we're going to resist the empire and then God will overthrow the wicked rulers. Now, imagine those people being in the same church together. (laughs) We know that most of the early Christian uh, congregations were formed out of Jewish communities. Just imagine that complication and complexity alone. You're sitting around in a small church, the Church of Colossae, maybe it's 25, 30 people. We're not exactly sure, but it's not terribly large. And imagine sitting in one household meeting and looking across and saying, oh, no, that guy's here? I've seen what he posts on Facebook. That dude is so pro-Rome. I mean, it's not even funny. And then the other person, what is she doing here? She's all about hashtag resist. Like, I mean, I, 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 what? I can't, we can't be in the same church together. And then, that's just the Jewish believers, right? you got Gentiles who became Christians. Now, Gentiles, they're even more of a smorgasbord of collections. you got some Gentiles who were part of the Greek philosophy, and they're like, this is how it has to be, and this is our sophisticated wisdom, and we believe in a very stratified society, and so these are the higher-ups, and these are the lower, lowly lows, you know. And then you got other Greeks who are just Gentiles, rather, who are just pagans, like total pagans. Their only idea of of religion and and spirituality involved immorality and just gross stuff. And you're like, then these people all get saved. And all of these groups, the, the various parties within the Jewish community and the various kinds of Gentiles, it's possible that in one congregation you had representatives from all these different groups. And you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. No wonder Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ rule. 
let it rule. And the, the word here is so strong that commentators can't decide. Is it more like an umpire or is it more like a judge? And they're like, it's kind of both. It's the peace of Christ that should say safe or out or yes or no or right or wrong. It's the peace of Christ that is the thing that is meant to sort of govern us together. And so if we were to, to describe this even more, we would say to let the peace of Christ rule in us means letting Jesus bring reconciliation in our relationships. It means letting Jesus not erase our differences, but tear down our divisions. Tear down our divisions. You guys, uh, you know, we're, we're tongue in cheek and joking about the ways that this is parallel with our world, but the truth is it's been a very heavy week, hasn't it? And when you listen to the hearings testimony of Dr. Ford and the response from Judge Kavanaugh, maybe even beyond the content itself, what breaks my heart is the way that we respond to one another and the way that Christians respond to other Christians. And I imagine that in this congregation, there are different ones who feel differently about the hearings. There are some who believe a particular point and another who believe a different point. But I think the great temptation for us is to demonize the people who are different than us, is to turn the people who disagree with us into, oh, outright evil. Because once you can vilify a person or a camp or a party, then you can justify your behavior toward them. Once you can vilify them as, oh, th these are all a bunch of lying hypocrites, therefore I can justify whatever approach I want to take to squash them. But can I say to you that as Christians, that is not letting the peace of Christ rule. And I am standing up here as the chief of sinners. I've done that. I've retweeted and posted and shared a link and thought, oh, why did I do that? not realizing that I'm not doing anything here to try to understand anything on the other side. See, maybe if we listened a little more closely, maybe we could say that on both sides of even this issue this week, maybe we could say that at its best, at their best, both sides want a kind of justice. One, one, one side wants justice for an innocent person falsely accused. The other side wants justice for a victim who never got to hear repentance from their victimizer. And at their best, that's what both sides want. And at their worst, both sides have their fair share of liars and hypocrites. And part of allowing the peace of Christ to rule means saying, I want to hold together repentance and reconciliation. And I'm not going to imagine that I'm morally superior and this, is, this, this group is evil. It's, that's too easy, isn't it? And I just wonder, as Christians, can we sit at the same table of the Lord together? Is there a way that we can say, what is it you're seeing? I, I don't see that. Clearly, I'm just thinking about this issue. What is it you see? Can the church find a way of disagreeing that's better than the way the world disagrees? Can we do I'm not asking you to give up your perspectives. I'm asking you to let the peace of Christ rule. Amen. I'm not asking you to give up your values. I'm asking you to let the peace of Christ rule.
Can the church show a different way? Can the church show that inside the body of Christ we've given up tribal identities? We've given up particular party loyalties? That in the church we set aside partisanship for loyalty to King Jesus alone? That's what it means to let the peace of Christ reign. Now, it's also worth saying that the peace of Christ is not a cheap peace. This is not a we are the world, kumbaya kind of peace. This is not, a, oh, well, let's just, you know, everyone is welcome here, and let's just, you know. The peace of Christ is a costly peace. And one New Testament scholar says that Paul was always trying to hold together unity and holiness. Unity and holiness. We've got to keep the church together, and yet holiness matters. And so reconciliation does not mean there's no such thing as repentance. Both things matter. Repentance matters. Reconciliation matters. You can't have reconciliation unless there is repentance. But letting the peace of Christ rule means we're willing to call ourselves to repent and not just call someone else to repent. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ. I'm not just going to say, oh, well, I got nothing. I got no issues here. It's all that evil party. But to say, God, how are you calling me to repent? Because the church cannot model a better peace and a better unity if we ourselves are not being confronted with the gospel. And this is why the very next verse, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, the second thing Paul says is let the word of Christ dwell dwell. You see, you can't let the peace of Christ rule if it's not the word of Christ that's dwelling in you. If all that you're taking in day after day after day is cable news or mainstream media or talk radio, I mean, guys, that is not the word of Christ. That may be a helpful, thoughtful thing. That may be a good, it may be your point of view. That's fine. Ha- have, have at it. But ultimately, the thing that's supposed to dwell in you is this. It's the word of Christ. It's not any network that starts with any letters. It's Jesus and King Jesus and King Jesus and his kingdom. Amen? Amen. The, the church will never be different from the world if the word of Christ is not dwelling in us. If the best that we have to offer is regurgitated rhetoric that we've already heard, what what do we got? We got nothing. But if the gospel is dwelling in us, we're gonna have a different word. We'll have a word of reconciliation. We'll have a word of repentance. We'll have a word of humility. We'll have a word of peace. That's the difference. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, I, I think there's more to this, okay? Move beyond the issue of the day. And, and, and thank you for letting me talk about a current issue. Billy Graham said we ought to preach with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. I, I think it'd be a shame if there's conversations that we're having outside the church but never able to have them inside the church. So thank you for allowing us to go there this morning, okay? <laughs> but this idea of the word of Christ dwelling is much bigger than just the conversation of the week. What Paul means by this is to let the word of Christ dwell in us means letting the gospel be the very substance of our relationships. Letting the gospel be the very substance of our relationships. It means that what we have to offer one another is more than just our advice or our opinions or our listening ear. Now, 
That is so good. And the gift of our presence, especially in times of grief, is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. But sometimes what we can also do is read a psalm of lament. Very often when I'm sitting with someone in grief, I'm not relying on saying, well, let me give you this theology or this thing. Sometimes the best thing to do is pull up a psalm and say, hey, can I just read this psalm out loud to us? And you read something and all of a sudden people are, are weeping. Why? Because what we have to offer one another is so much richer than just platitudes. <laughs> we have the word of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German a theologian and pastor during the time of World War II said it this way. He wrote a book called Life Together, all about Christian community. And, and one of the beautiful things in there that Bonhoeffer said, he says, God has put his word into the mouth of men. Now, he, his community was all men, so he's talking this way with, with men. But, but you can hear these words and understand this applies to men and women in the church together. In order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Isn't that amazing? God has willed it. How do we find the word of Christ? Through one another, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. Amen? We need it. I need it. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. This is why community matters. This is why our meal groups at New Life Downtown, one of the core uh, uh, ways that our meal groups are shaped is to be, one, some of our groups are shaped around just the scripture together where we read the scripture out loud. This is why whatever uh, uh, presence we offer to one another of listening and, and empathizing, empathy is so good, but Christians actually have more to give than just empathy. We have the very word of God. And that's what he says when he becomes uncertain. And okay, he needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's is sure. Isn't that great? We're, we all have moments where the word of Christ in you is uncertain, it's shaken. You're going through something and you're like, oh, oh, I'm having a hard time believing this. And you don't say to them in that moment, well, how dare you have doubt? You say, it's okay, friend. Lean on the word of Christ in me. The word of Christ is strong in me. Let me believe for you today. Let me, let me speak life on your behalf and into you today. It's okay that you're feeling weak and uncertain but it just so happens that the word of Christ is strong in me. Amen. And then in verse 17, Paul says, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the Lord Jesus. Paul says it this way on purpose, I think. That word Lord is the same word, the same title, rather, that Caesar used of himself, the Kyrios the Lord. And Paul's saying, hey, Christian, you have one Caesar. It's not actually that Caesar. It's Jesus. You have one Lord. His name is Jesus. Do everything in his name. So the third thing is to, in the name of Christ, live. In the name of the Messiah, in the name of King Jesus, 
live. And I think what we can understand this phrase to mean is that to live in the name of Christ means to live as a representative of King Jesus and his kingdom. The name of the Lord Jesus. You can imagine Caesar commissioning others to go and people arriving all through the various outposts of the Roman Empire saying, in the name of Caesar, I declare, da, 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 da. And people have said, oh my goodness, in the name of Caesar. And Paul says, did you know that you, yes, even you in Colossae, that forgotten town, yes, even you feeling insignificant in your station in life, you actually can live in the name of a higher king you're, it doesn't matter. You, you don't have any status with Rome? Doesn't matter. You have status with King Jesus. You're his representative. You get to be his representative. And then what's amazing about this is then Paul starts to list all of our intimate relationships. He talks about husbands and wives and parents and children. And he goes on and on. He's basically saying, look, wherever you are, live there as a representative of King Jesus. Now, one of the things that has saddened me the most over the last couple years is how those most associated with King Jesus, i.e. church leaders, have said and done things that do not represent King Jesus. And as a result, people are leaving the church. I saw it again this week. Someone said just casually on, the, on a thread, yeah, this is the reason I don't go to church anymore. Be careful. And I say this to myself. What if I really believe that everything I post and tweet and say and do is as a representative of King Jesus? God help us. God help us. We are to live as a rep of King Jesus. So then Paul says, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in our very households and our most intimate relationships. Now, Let's say a few things about these next few verses. Some of you have been in college settings or university settings where, where, or just in conversations with others where people just throw out there, oh, well, you know, the Bible is pro-slavery and it's got all this stuff in there about slaves and masters, so, so, you know. And certainly, in previous eras in American history, these texts have been preached that way and have been used to justify exploitation and slavery. And so it's worth clearing this up. Okay? The first thing we need to say about these texts that do contain references to slaves and masters is that, is that slavery in the first century is very different than, than the slavery of the American South. And different for a number of companies. There's some similarities and there's some differences. But by no means was Paul uh, uh, baptizing or blessing slavery in the ancient world. He's not. He's not condoning it. He's not saying, this is fine. This is an acceptable way to divide up. He's not saying that. But you have to understand that in the Roman world, Paul and these Christians had no way of undoing the system. It's, it's different than in our day where you can use protests or boycotts or, or, or even democracy, as we saw Wilberforce do with Parliament in, in the UK, and, and, or even here in, in America with Lincoln and, and the Civil War. There was no agency that Paul or the Christians had in the first century to say, let's undo the whole system. But you do see Paul saying, but in the church, you guys are going to live differently. In the church, you guys are going to treat each other differently. So there's a whole letter that Paul writes to a guy called Philemon, where he tells him to, not, to, to undo uh, uh, the, the stratification of slavery when Onesimus returns, this runaway slave. And he says, don't hold him to that. 
Treat him now as a brother. So you see Paul trying to say, the places that you can undo and change, go ahead and undo this. But the system as a whole in the first century could not have been undone. But it's worth noting, hundreds of years later, that when the system was undone, it was undone by people who had Paul's words dwelling in them, who had the word of Christ dwelling in them and said, and Wilberforce, if you've ever read about the way he passionately argued against the slave trade, he was using some of these texts. And later on, even in, in our continent, and still to this day around the world, the work that is done in anti-trafficking work and to free modern day slaves, that's being led, thank God, by Christians. And so it is as if Paul sort of set a time bomb in the text. And he said, you may not be able to take it to its full implications now, but just wait. Poof, one day you're going to tear down all of these oppressive regimes, all of these institutions that are built on the backs of other people, all systems of exploitation and slavery will come down in the name of King Jesus. And then the second troubling thing that's often a source of strife in these texts is when Paul talks about husbands and wives. And he talks about it with the sense of, of a structure in mind. And here's what I want to say. Good Christians set up their homes in different ways. And I am less concerned with the structure of your home and more concerned with the posture of your heart toward one another. Amen. Right? Some people will say, oh, 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 we're, we're a complementarian. That's our structure. The, the man is the head. But actually, when you ask them how they make decisions, it's like, oh, you guys are in unity. There's so much love and unity and mutuality and respect that you're like, that's, that's awesome. And then other people say, oh, we are egalitarian. We believe there's no head. It's just we, we do everything. We make every decision together. But when you look a little closer, you're like, oh, but actually, this person always pulls a power move. And so sometimes the, the fixating on the structure is misleading. It's much better to pay attention to the posture of your heart. How are you inhabiting those roles? How are you living? In what way do you live? In what way do you love? In what way do you treat one another? So actually, in this text, the most striking things Paul says are to the people who have greater power. So you may know this, but in the ancient world, there were several texts like this. Rome had their own household codes, instructions about how wives should submit and instructions about children obeying parents and all of this stuff, everything oriented around the patriarch of the home as the center. Those were, that, that stuff was there in Roman texts. But you know what's not in the Roman text but is in Paul's letters? It's what Paul says to the people in power. That's uniquely Christian. The uniquely Christian part of these uh, of these household codes is the way Paul holds the person in power responsible to exercise power in a new way. That's what the gospel does. The gospel reshapes the way we use power. Because here's the thing, even in our society, you have bosses, you have people who have, have seniority over you, there's, you have professors, you have teachers, you've, there's all kinds of power differentials. You'll, we can't erase power differentials in our world, but we can change the way we live within them, right? And so this is the, there's two things Paul's basically saying. One, to those in power. He says, to those in power, you are, you are to function in those positions the way King Jesus did. So are you a boss? Are you a parent? Are you a senior partner? Are you a professor or a teacher? Are you an administrator? Are you the foreman on the job? If you have any position of power, 
Use your power the way King Jesus did. To serve, to give, to make someone else flourish, to help someone else succeed, to make someone else better. Do you lead an organization? Lead this way. See, I think in the secular world today, people are so embarrassed by power differentials, the world's solution is to say, nobody ought to have leadership. Right? Oh, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have a leader. Paul's saying, look, sometimes you gotta have a leader. It's okay. The question is, how will you lead? How will you lead? In what way are you the CEO? In what way are you the chairman of the board? How do you conduct your meetings? How do you interact with people? Lead this way, right? And then, if you're not in power, those who are not in positions of power, you're not stuck. You can glorify King Jesus in the way that you serve those over you. Now, this is, this is revolutionary because, you, you know, we in America have so many ways of responding when we're not in power. There are good and, and healthy and peaceful ways to protest and to demonstrate and to call for change. Those are wonderful parts of, of our, of our uh, uh, unique environment here in, in the States. And I'm not going to talk about all of those things. Those things are a big deal and they're important and they're legitimate. I want to talk about, for a lot of us, where you live and maybe the place that you work, and you say, well, I'm just in an entry-level job and I don't like my boss. Or I'm, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm just a student in school and I don't like, care for my professor. And so it's very tempting in those situations where you're not in power to say, well, I don't need to really work that hard. I don't know. I mean, whatever. I hate this job. It's such a dumb job. My boss is a jerk. So if he's going to be a jerk, I'm going to go ahead and like cheat the company and like say I was working when I was not really working. People do this stuff, right? All the time. And so we, that creeps into even sort of our, our Christian way of doing it. To say, well, we, although we have nicer ways of saying it. We're like, you know, my boss, he's, uh, he's not very, like, emotionally mature. <laughs> he doesn't really get my dreams. So this is like a for now thing, but this is not like what I'm going to do long term. So I'm just going to, you know, whatever, do the minimum. And Paul's like, Wherever you find yourself, act like you're serving King Jesus. It's not about your boss. It's about King Jesus. And so if you're at the starter position, if you're the intern, if you're the whatever, your boss may be a jerk. Okay, but King Jesus is at your office too. King Jesus is on the job site too. King Jesus is in the boardroom too. And you're like, ugh. Now, clearly, I'm not talking about situations of harm or abuse or, or, or very truly dangerous or unjust situations. I'm talking about the stuff that happens every day where we say, it's not my dream. I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, Paul's like, you're going to live like that? No. You're not in power. Sure. So what? Paul is, does not subscribe to the John Mayer theory of I'm just waiting for the world to change. Paul's saying, no, while you're there, glorify King Jesus. Whatever station of life you find yourself in, whatever status you find yourself in, serve like you're serving King Jesus. I'll never forget just a quick story. Several years ago, when uh, my boss, Pastor Brady, was talking to me about a, a Sunday night service, and he was like, oh, let's, we could do this thing, and we have a video of the sermon, and, and I was like bristling, you know, because we've all been 30, and... Um, and I was like, man, this doesn't fit my ideal of what church should be. This doesn't match my, you know, my dream and da-da-da-da. And I was wrestling with what to do. Because on the one hand, 
it's a cool idea. On the other hand, it's like, oh, I didn't love the video piece. So I called my dad. My parents were still in Malaysia. And my dad said, look, why don't you be the kind of team member you want to have one day? Like, you're not leading, right? You're not in charge. Why don't you be the kind of team member you want to be, uh, you want to have one day? And I thought, that's, that's wisdom. And so many of us, particularly young people, are so ideal, uh, idealistic about our situation that if anything, the tiniest thing is off or not right, we're like, hmm, I am going to, you know, and you're applying resistance ideology in all the wrong ways. You know, like, I'm going to resist by, like, showing up late today, you know? You're like, no, that might actually be a poor way of working. Like not getting, missing a deadline, not showing up, not doing the homework. That's not like bravo you. That's like not serving King Jesus. So serve in those roles as if you're serving King Jesus. At the end of the day, what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians is, every square inch of your life has been claimed by King Jesus. You don't have this little spiritual corner over here where it's like Jesus and forgiveness and heaven and then uh, this is how I work. <laughs> you know? Paul's like, what? No, it's all under King Jesus. And not only that, but the church is to be this new kind of family where here we are worshiping together from different backgrounds, different stations in society, different political persuasions, different identities and loyalties, but all here because we say, you know what, those things are fine, but I'll tell you the really, the only thing that matters is that King Jesus has claimed me, Amen. and King Jesus has claimed you, and that makes us brothers and sisters. Sorry, we're stuck, right? <laughs> And so when we come to the table today, I want us to come with that in mind, to be able to repent of all the ways that we've not let the peace of Christ rule or the word of Christ dwell or the name of Christ shape how we live. And we come to the table to say, Jesus, I welcome whoever you welcome. If they're sitting at your table, then that's your family. And so I'm here too. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning as we pray?